You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at the picture. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Y'all, I finally have wheels again, so movies will be returning next week. Which is good, because this is another big boy episode, and there's some follow-up stuff to go over from last week. As you may well remember, last week I explained a little bit about what's going on with the now-on-pause IATSE strike. To give an update on the situation, a deal was struck, but very few people seem to be stoked about the agreement that was made. The next step will be taking that agreement to the IOTC members who vote on whether to ratify it or not. Depending on what happens there is going to decide what happens after that. And we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. If you have any questions about why crew members are fighting for safer sets, look no further than what happened on the set of the film Rust this week. According to crew members, there was no armorer on set who was essentially a weapons expert that should have been in charge of any weapon fired in any manner. And from the sounds of it, the gun that Alec Baldwin ended up firing off seemed to be a little screwy because the person who was in charge of the guns shot himself in the foot the night before this accident happened. Also, according to crew members, there wasn't a medic on set, which is super illegal on a film of that size, especially one shooting in a rural location. The camera crew had walked off of that set earlier that day in protest of these unsafe conditions, so a lot of things definitely weren't kosher over there. It's still early days, and based on what has come out so far, there is likely far more than what happened on that set than what's being mentioned so far. The largest sin of all and the absolute most horrific thing to come out that happened is that this negligence and corner cutting in the name of saving money cost a promising talented woman her life this should scream loud and clear from the rooftops and other high places to anyone in the industry at any level that no amount of money saved is worth a person's life i You know what? I'm a creative, artistic vision, whatever. But if you do not have the money to make a film, don't make a damn film. You could literally cost someone their life. Anyway, on to this week's topic. Did you know that the Lord of the Rings trilogy probably wouldn't exist in the way we know it today without this week's subject? This week, we're covering the history of my favorite cinematic slasher and one of the later ones to enter the playing field. He's the monster that literally and figuratively haunts your dreams, Freddy Krueger. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Nine, ten, 
Sleeping and dreaming are two things that every human does, and scientists have more or less figured out why we sleep, but they are still trying to figure out exactly why we dream. It is within that mysterious realm that director Wes Craven found the inspiration for his next project. The origins of Freddy Krueger go all the way back to the 1970s. Freddy creator Wes Craven, when writing the film in the early 80s, was inspired by several newspaper articles printed in the LA Times about a group of Asian men who were suffering disturbing nightmares after which they refused to go back to sleep. One such young man, whose father was a doctor, gave his son sleeping pills, which he fought until sleep eventually overtook him. The doctor and his wife tucked their son into bed, relieved he was finally getting some shut-eye, only to be woken up by his screams in the night. Entering his bedroom, they found their son thrashing violently. When he stopped, he was dead. Soon after, they also found the sleeping pills he'd been given hidden in his bed and a coffee maker stash in the closet. Medical specialists eventually called the phenomenon Asian death syndrome. The condition affected only men between the ages of 19 to 57 and is believed to be a type of sudden unexplained death syndrome and or Brugada syndrome, the latter of which is a genetic electrical heart defect. For Craven, it was the beginning of his dream killer. He also pulled from his childhood, as filmmakers are one to do. Craven remembers seeing an elderly man pacing in front of his bedroom window when he was young. The man stopped to glance at a startled Craven before walking off into the night, leaving the young boy terrified. He also liked the idea of the sins of the parents being suffered by the children they tried so desperately to protect. Initially, Fred Krueger was written to be a child molester, but Craven shifted that lens and made him a child murderer, with the other part being heavily implied but never uttered in the first film, to avoid being accused of exploiting a series of highly publicized child molestation cases that occurred in California schools around the time of the production of the film. Craven also made Freddy the, quote, worst of parenthood and adulthood. The dirty old man, the nasty father, and the adult who wants children to die rather than help them prosper. He's the boogeyman and the worst fear of children, the adult that's out to get them. He's a very primal figure, sort of like Kronos devouring his children, that evil, twisted, perverted father figure that wants to destroy and is able to get them at their most vulnerable moment, which is when they are asleep. Craven also named Freddy after his childhood bully, Fred Krueger. Elm Street would be named as such because it reminded Craven of, like, Americana. It sounded very Americana to him. It was also the street of a school he taught at before becoming a filmmaker, as well as the name of the street JFK was assassinated on. Unlike our first two franchise creators from this month, John Carpenter and Seanus Cunningham, by the early 1980s, Wes Craven was a pretty well-established, though broke, master of the horror genre. He'd done films like The Last House on the Left from 1972, The Hills Have Eyes from 1977, both of which got him a lot of attention. That did not mean, however, that it would be easy getting Freddy on the big screen. Writing the script for A Nightmare on Elm Street began in 1981 after Craven had finished work on Swamp Thing, which released in 1982. He pitched his Nightmare script to several studios over the course of three years, but each one of them rejected it for one reason or another. Disney was even interested at one point if Craven was willing to tone it way down so it'd be suitable for preteens. Craven, unsurprisingly, declined that offer. 
Universal passed as well, and their rejection letter would eventually hang in Craven's office. They didn't want to make the film, but maybe they'd be willing to buy it after the film got made. Freddy would find his home at a studio just starting to get its feet wet. Its founder, Bob Shea, whom had started his company out of the trunk of his car, decided to take a chance on a nightmare. New Line Cinema had made a couple of small films up until this point, and this was going to be their biggest gamble yet. Eventually, New Line would be referred to as the house that Freddy built. It wasn't an easy ride to get this film made either. New Line would lose distribution while the film was in production, meaning cast and crew couldn't be paid for several weeks. They also had to turn to external financiers, including one of the producers for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The film eventually secured $1.1 to $1.8 million in funding, depending on the source. Craven didn't want a stuntman to inhabit the role of Freddy, as was the practice in previous slasher films. He needed his killer to do more than just murder his victims. He needed to psychologically taunt them. While Robert England would be the actor to make Freddy come alive, he was not the first to be cast. That was David Warner, an English actor, whom had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. This led Craven on a mad scramble to try and find someone to fit the bill. Craven described in an interview commemorating the 30th anniversary of the first Nightmare film the issues he faced in this process. Quote, I couldn't find an actor to play Freddy Krueger with the sense of ferocity I was seeking. Everyone was too quiet, too compassionate towards children. Then Robert England auditioned. He wasn't as tall as I'd hoped, and he had baby fat on his face, but he impressed me with his willingness to go to the dark places in his mind. Robert understood Freddy. When it came to his look, Craven chose the red and green sweater because he read an article stating that red and green were the two most conflicting colors to the human eye when placed side by side. He wanted audiences to literally be in pain when they looked at Freddy. He also made a choice that no other slasher films were making at the time. Freddy Krueger would not wear a mask. Craven wanted him to be able to use his words when it came to taunting and torturing his victims and opted to have him have a terribly burned and scarred face instead. The final design was inspired by pepperoni pizza of all things. Makeup effects designer David Miller's pepperoni pizza to be exact. One night, while having dinner at a pizza parlor, Miller gave his dinner a little makeover and in doing so gave the world the horrifying face of Freddy Krueger. Pepperoni pizza has been tainted forever. Craven also wanted Freddy to use something other than a plain old knife. He recalls, quote, So I thought, how about a glove with steak knives? I gave the idea to our special effects guy, Jim Doyle. Doyle would create two versions of the glove, the hero glove that was only used when anything needed to be cut, and the stunt glove which was less likely to cause injury to the actors or crew. Before he was given his final murder weapon, Craven had considered a sickle, but around the third or fourth draft of the script, the iconic glove had become his final choice. Other cast members included Heather Langenkamp, who fit Craven's search for an actress that was non-Hollywood looking, someone who wouldn't strip and fall down in the face of danger, a final girl whom couldn't be swapped out with any of the other final girls in any other slasher film. Then, of course, there was a relatively unknown actor cast as Nancy's boyfriend, a 21-year-old named Johnny Depp. Filming took place over 32 days, starting on June 11, 1984, in and around Los Angeles. 500 gallons of fake blood were used in the production. The blood geyser in the film was actually dyed water, though, because the fake blood looked weird shooting out of the bed. It was too heavy. Tina's death, 
is achieved, if you've ever wondered, by the use of a rotating room. The effect worked so well that the actress that played Tina actually believed she was falling after the scene cut, even though throughout the entire scene, throughout her entire performance, she was always on what was the floor of the room. The camera was mounted to rotate with the room with a cameraman in an airplane seat, like a jump seat. And because the camera can't tell that it's being flipped around to them, everything remains as it should be, even though the room is turning. Similar shots have been achieved in films like Fred Astaire dancing in Royal Wedding from 1951, The Hallway Fight Scene with Joseph Gordon-Levitt in Inception from 2010, and gravity-defying moves achieved by the NSYNC members in their music video for Bye Bye Bye. The same rotating room effect was used to achieve the blood geyser towards the end of the film. The room was flipped upside down, and the water poured through the hole in the bed. When the blood water hit the lamp in the scene, it electrified the water, gently electrocuting the person pouring the water and covering the crew in fake blood. Like the other slashers, Freddy has a theme song. The song was based on the nursery rhyme, When to Buckle My Shoe, and was written into the script, but the music for the song was not composed by the film's composer, but rather Heather Lingenkamp's then-fiancé, musician Alan Pasca. Bernstein, the composer, took Pasca's rendition and integrated it into the soundtrack. As always, here's the synopsis if you've never seen A Nightmare on Elm Street. All American teens Nancy and Tina are haunted in their dreams by a mutilated man in a dirty red and green sweater. Tina is so terrified of this dream man that she asks Nancy and Nancy's boyfriend Glenn, played by Depp, to spend the night when her mother and stepfather are away. That night, Rod, Tina's boyfriend, crashes the party and the duo end up having some horizontal fun times. When Tina falls into her post-coital slumber, she is chased by her nightmare man. When he catches her, he begins to kill her. In the waking world, Rod is awakened by Tina's screams and watches in horror as she is dragged up the wall of the bedroom, screaming for help and covered in blood. Rod flees in a panic, believing the police will blame him for Tina's demise. When the police arrive, led by Lieutenant Donald, Nancy's father, whom is none too thrilled to see his daughter at a murder scene, they begin the manhunt for Rod. Nancy returns to school the following Monday and falls asleep in class where she is confronted by the mysterious murder man. She burns herself on a pipe in the dream, and this wakes her up. The burn follows her from the dream world to the waking one. Rod eventually gets caught and dies by hanging in his cell at the hands of Freddy. Nancy comes to believe that this dream man is to blame for all of her friends' deaths. As Nancy becomes increasingly unhinged, her mother eventually comes clean. Fred Krueger was a child killer slash molester, and when he was released from prison on a technicality, the parents of Springwood cornered and killed him by burning him alive. Her mother assures her that Freddy can't kill her. He's already dead. Of course, we know that parents are very rarely right in a horror movie, and Freddy continues his carnage, picking off Glenn, whom gets sucked into a waterbed and then ejected in a geyser of blood. Nancy realizes that she must pull Fred Krueger out of her dream in order to finish him off, which she does, but not before he manages to kill her mother in the process. 
He is defeated when Nancy refuses to believe in him any further. In the end, Nancy steps outside into a bright and foggy morning where all her friends and her mother are still alive. Nancy gets into Glenn's convertible to go to school, and then the top suddenly comes down and locks them in the car as it drives off uncontrollably down the street. Three girls in white dresses playing jump rope are heard chanting Freddy Krueger's nursery rhyme as Nancy's mother is grabbed by Krueger through the front door window. The ending was added to leave open the possibility of sequels, much to Craven's chagrin, as he didn't think anyone would want to see another one of these films. A Nightmare on Elm Street opened in theaters on November 9th, 1984, a mere four months after filming had commenced. The producers waited with bated breath to see if their gamble had paid off. Turns out there wasn't much to worry about. The initial Nightmare run was only 165 theaters, but that quickly expanded. People were terrified of Freddy. All in all, the film made $25.5 million worldwide in its initial run, recouping its cost several times over. And the critics liked it too, which was unheard of pretty much at that time. The film put New Line Cinema on the map and Wes Craven into the stratosphere. Freddy was on his way to being a pop culture icon. This is where it takes us. Come on, we're going. Pre-production on A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, began in April 1985, though the idea had been bouncing around the studio for a while. The other financial entity that had helped produce Nightmare took most of the profits because Bob Shea wanted to make sure that he retained the copyright of Freddy Krueger, so he owned Freddy, but he needed some cash flow. Several ideas bounced around for what the sequel could be. Wes Craven had bowed out at this point because he hated the scripts they were considering. The one they ended up going with was written by a dude in the New Line 16mm distribution department whom could write. Craven didn't like the idea of a possessed parakeet or Freddy merging with the film's main character. The film was rushed into production, eager to have the film in theaters in time for Halloween, leaving its director Jack Shoulder, whom was a trailer editor at New Line, feeling pretty unprepared. He'd never worked with heavy special effects, something this film would require a lot of. How fast did they rush it, do you ask? Robert England wasn't confirmed to play Freddy yet when cameras started rolling. Now that Freddy had become a slashing icon, his agent wanted to make sure Robert was being paid his rightful share. The filmmaker started shooting with a double and a rubber mask, and the double was, by all accounts, garbage. Soon they made a deal to bring Robert back. There was no Freddy if there was no Robert England. The plot of this one is basically a family moves into Nancy's home five years after the events of the first film. Soon after moving in, their son Jesse is haunted by Freddy, whom eventually tries to recruit him to murder for him. Eventually, Jesse and Freddy merge, and bloody chaos ensues. The role of Jessie is considered by many to be the first male scream queen and was read for by some of the best talent in town at the time, including Brad Pitt and Christian Slater. The role would eventually go to Mark Patton. Mark Patton would make a documentary about his life and the effect Nightmare 2 had on it because of some of the most notable aspects of this film. 
See, Mark Patton was closeted at the time, and Nightmare 2 had a lot of, let's say, homoerotic themes in the film, and those wreaked havoc on Mark's psyche and eventually his life. Nightmare 2 has been touted by one critic as the, quote, gayest film ever. This sentiment has seeped into pop culture as well, as Nightmare 2 has become a cult film within the gay community. Everyone who worked on the film denied seeing that at the time until many years later. Speaking of which, there are a ton of sexual undertones in this film, like with Freddy trying to seduce Jesse in order to take over his body. There's like a towel snapping scene while the guy is like chained to a wall in the shower and looking at all of that with a 2021 sense of mind it definitely comes off as a little homoerotic like more than like the volleyball scene in top gun there's a lot of weird sexy bondage stuff in this film it's also weirdly horny in so many places just 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 watch it and and enjoy it's like it, anything i say will compare will pale in comparison this is my least favorite of the films in the franchise because I get secondhand cringe real bad and the the undertones are just so obvious to me that it makes me just ugh to watch it just kind of like I'm I'm embarrassed for you like for the actors but but damn it is campy as hell if that's your thing when all of a sudden done Nightmare 2 opened on November 1st 1985 and made 30 million dollars against a 3 million dollar budget New Line had been expecting a 30% drop off in box office with a sequel which was normal at the time and instead saw a 5% increase between the first and second film's box office takes. However, the problems that had been there in the initial script carried into the final film and the critics nailed the film as a result, noting the drastic change in tone from the first to the second. After Nightmare 2, Freddy's Revenge is critical and fan failure, New Line struggled with whether or not to continue making the Nightmare franchise. That was until Wes Craven showed interest in returning to write another Freddy film. His first idea was that Freddy would haunt a group of actors making the new Nightmare on Elm Street film. This meta-cinema idea was turned down, but would come back around later. Before it was decided what script would be used, both John Saxon, whom played Lieutenant Donald in the first film, and Robert England himself tried their hands at writing scripts for the next film. Saxon's script was called How the Nightmare on Elm Street All Began, which just rolls right off the tongue. This film would have been a prequel showing that Freddy was actually innocent and set up by none other than Charlie Manson, who, along with his followers, would have been the main villains of the film. England's treatment was called Freddy's Funhouse. The protagonist's final girl would have been Tina's older sister, who ends up coming back to Springwood to investigate how her sister died. According to England, part of his script ended up being used in an episode of Freddy's Nightmares, which was a series on for several years that had Freddy acting in a Crypt Keeper-esque capacity, setting up standalone series of horror stories. The eventual script was initially written by Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner, whom set their film at an asylum for troubled teens. It wasn't quite what the producers wanted, and the script was punched up by Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell. The basic plot is Nancy is a new psychologist at a hospital for mentally troubled teens and soon realizes that her new patients are being haunted by her old nemesis, Freddy. She must once again fight against Freddy and the authority figures in the waking world, denying what ails their young patients. 
After several of their number are violently and creatively killed by their stalker, the group eventually learn to beat Freddy at his own game with the help of Kristen, whom can manipulate her own dreams, and they learn to control their dreams and defeat Freddy once more, burying his remains on hollowed ground. A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, is the first film that has Freddy really breaking away from just using his knives as killing tools and instead using his victim's darkest fears. In this film, for example, murders include a girl getting her head shoved into a television, a guy having his tendons ripped off from his arms and legs, and then puppet walked off of a tower, a young woman being killed by a heroin overdose after her track marks beg for Freddy's needle hands, one of the kids getting killed by Freddy's knives after trying to kill him with his his dream wizard powers, and Lieutenant Don, who's now a security guard, getting killed by Freddy's reanimated Harryhausen-esque skeleton. Also, Patricia Arquette, whom plays Kristen, the final girl in this film, gets semi-eaten by a giant phallic-y snake Freddy. This line of creative murders, antics, and humorous quips would become one of the calling cards for the Freddy franchise and make the character into a pop figure. A figure his creator Wes Craven didn't want him to be, but a figure nonetheless. Dream Warriors also introduce more of the lore of Freddy, revealing that he is the bastard son of a thousand maniacs. His mother, Amanda Kruger, you see, was a nun who worked at an asylum who was by mistake left in a room with a bunch of mentally ill men over the Christmas holidays. When she was found after those holidays, she was pregnant with Freddy. The film also touches on teen suicide, which was rising in prevalence during the mid-80s, and the film truly struck a chord with parents and kids alike. It brought home the notion of, listen to your children when they say they're hurting. Dream Warriors was the first nightmare film and one of the first independent films to open nationally on February 27, 1987. It was New Line's first film to do so and debuted at number one with a weekend gross of $8.9 million, a record for independent film at that time. It was no longer a cult film. It was now a full-blown phenomenon. Nightmare 3 also got Good reviews? Indeed it did, with many critics noting its creative kill scenes, which would become a staple of the series. Siskel and Ebert, the go-to movie reviewers of the era, famously got into a heated discussion on their show about whether or not the film should have been rated harsher than its R rating. I had a close friend show me a film Roger Ebert wrote, so his opinion no longer holds any stock for me at all, but the argument is hilarious to watch, knowing that he wrote the film Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and is trying to hold any level of moral high ground. That movie is messed up. You know by now, if a horror movie does well, another isn't far behind. New Line was now a solid production company, but even still, they approached Wes Craven once again to make a sequel, but his idea was considered too weird by the producers. He wanted to do some weird time-traveling thing within dreams that kind of sounds like it would have been some Inception shit before Inception was Inception. Producers instead decided to go with William Kotzwinkel's idea instead, which should be rewritten by Brian Helgeland and then polished by Ken and Jim Wheat, whom the Writers Guild credited the show shooting script. This script dealt with the concept of a dream master, leading the film to be called A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. This film also adds a bit of lore onto Freddy, since in this film he unceremoniously finishes killing off the Elm Street children, and in order to get new blood, he forces Kristen, whom was recast for this film, to call her friend Alice into the dream. Before Freddy kills her, Kristen transfers her dream master powers onto the timid Alice. 
As Freddy begins picking up Alice's friends, she begins to develop their character traits. And by the end, with all the personalities of her friends living inside of her, she's strong enough to defeat Freddy on her own. Filming for this movie was affected by the 1988 writer's strike, forcing untested director Rennie Harland and the producers to improvise a lot during the shoot. Many of the nightmare scenes were made up from ideas that Harland came up with rather than anything in the script, and several of the actors ended up having to write several of their own scenes. The film also ran out of money, leading one character to have to die during an invisible Freddy Kung Fu sequence. Best scene though, the sexy girl getting turned into a cockroach. It's so rad and creepy. If you have any doubt that experienced writers weren't allowed to be involved in shooting or further rewrites, Freddy is resurrected because a dog pisses fire. Fun fact, dog pee apparently deconsecrates holy ground. I was around in the 80s only for like the last three months and five days. Like how much cocaine was going around Hollywood at this time? Can someone like send me a ballpark figure? I'm genuinely curious. The film was released on August 19th, 1988, ranked number one on its opening weekend, making nearly $13 million. Altogether, the Dream Master grossed over $49 million at the U.S. box office, making it the highest grossing Nightmare on Elm Street film until Freddy vs. Jason was released in 2003. The director? Yeah, he was directing Die Hard 2 within the year. Other Hollywood studios, and even Bollywood, were trying to capitalize on the money hurricane the Elm Street movies were bringing in, so obviously they aren't going to start making these films at its source. This is also the point where Freddy got mad merchandise in every single way possible, from toys to pinball machines to children's pajamas. Oh, and there was Freddy Krueger Valium in Germany. Everybody loved Freddy. He was rapping in music videos. He was all over the damn place. Movie-wise, next came A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. At this point, Freddy was killing his other slasher counterparts at the box office on the reg, so much so that Paramount tried to get Freddy to team up with Jason for their next outings. But as we discussed last week, Freddy was a strong independent slasher who didn't need no hockey mask man to get in the way of his bidding. Screenwriter Leslie Boehm had originally pitched the basic storyline for the Dream Child to New Line executives during pre-production for Nightmare on Elm Street 3, but New Line executive Sarah Risher was pregnant at the time and didn't like the idea of Freddy Krueger crawling his way out of a woman's womb. After giving birth and being a mother for a few years, however, Risher started to think about the storyline and realized that the teenagers who had watched the original Elm Street film in 1984 were likely now starting to grow up and maybe have their own families, prompting the development of the dream child in late 1988. Pre-production on part five was challenging due to the frequently changing script. Director Stephen Hopkins recalled that the bulk of the final film came from Leslie Boehm's script, although John Skip and Craig Spector also added material, causing the Writers Guild of America to intervene once again when deciding who would ultimately get credit for writing the film. Which, by the way, is about Alice, she's still around, and her dream guy from Nightmare 4, whom are now together, and uh uh-oh, Alice is pregnant! But when Freddy kills her love, Alice must once again fight against her worst nightmare because this time he is after the soul of her unborn child. By this point, as we've mentioned, Freddy was a pop culture icon and therefore less scary than he had been in the first few films. The goal of the filmmakers with this outing was to once again send a shiver down the spines of the audience, reminding them that Freddy was not a clown, he was a cold-blooded killer. 
The production was rushed, and like a few of the other films, the script was changing and shifting on the reg. The highlight scene in the film is probably the one where the dude gets turned into the motorcycle. It's super dope. It's like, even like, how old am I, 32 years later? Like, it's still, like, it still holds up. It still looks pretty good. And the filmmakers actually had to go to battle with the MPAA for that scene. And I implore you to look at the unedited one. It's so much better. They made them cut so much cool stuff. Dream Child opened on August 11th, 1989, two weeks after Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. Dream Child finished only third at the box office its opening weekend, the worst showing since the franchise began releasing nationally. It made the money back it took to make the film, but the film was far from a blockbuster. Dream Child would finish 1989 as the highest grossing slasher film of the year, but it was clear that the slasher fatigue that had been affecting the likes of Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees was now reaching Freddy. By this point, New Line was no longer the young, struggling studio it had once been. In fact, it had developed several other franchises, including Critters and, for better or worse, the live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films. While New Line would always be the house that Freddy built, Freddy was just not keeping the lights on like he used to, and the producers wanted to focus on other projects. They decided to take Freddy out on their own terms. It was time to move on. Rachel Talele was hired as the director, and she had produced most of the previous installments and wanted to hop into the director's chair for what was going to be the final Freddy film, quote-unquote. Peter Jackson, a.k.a. the director of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, at the bequest of then-New Line VP Mark Ordesky, wrote a script for this film. It was called The Dream Lover and would feature children who would treat Freddy as a schoolyard gimmick, a la the pass-out game, but this script was not used. However, a connection was formed between Jackson and New Line and would lay the foundation for, oh, you know, The Lord of the Rings, a franchise that would give New Line a whole boatload of Oscars and big time recognition. Numerous other scripts were looked into. Eventually, they landed on a script that gave the film its name, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. This film desperately tries to appeal to the youths of the era, including Freddy using a version of the Nintendo Power Glove, which, by the way, how did those not A, catch on, or B, have a resurgence yet, to control one of the characters in the film? Freddy's Dead is a weird boy for sure. The film takes place many years after the last, with Springwood, Ohio, left a hollow shell after Freddy has successfully offed all of the children in town. The last remaining teen, John Doe, wakes up outside of Springwood with amnesia, teams up with three children from a youth shelter he eventually ends up in, and plan to leave Springwood for California once and for all. Freddy finds them and begins picking them off, but not before a doctor at the facility realizes Freddy is powered by dream demons. Maggie, another doctor at the shelter, also discovers that she's Freddy's daughter, and she enters his mind to defeat him. In his mind, she learns that Freddy was teased as a child, was abused by his foster father, inflicted self-abuse as a teenager, and murdered his wife before all that, like, children-killing stuff. Freddy was given the power to become immortal by fiery demons as he was dying because all the parents of Springwood tried to murder him. Maggie struggles to pull Freddy into the real world, but eventually succeeds, Freddy is defeated, and the three fiery dream demons... That gave Freddy his power this whole time, fly out of him as he is goes a splody once and for all in the grave. 
The film features a slew of cameos, including one from alum Johnny Depp, who appears in an anti-drug commercial shown on a TV in the film, as well as Tom Arnold and Roseanne Barr, whom were married at the time, and play a real weird couple whom lost their child to Freddy's malice. The promise of the final nightmare, despite the fact that way too many people are alive at the end of the film, was enough to bring a slew of bodies to the cinemas when the film released on September 13th, 1991, and the film had one of the biggest opening weekends of the franchise with 12.9 million. Critically, it was trash because, and I love these movies, it is not a good movie at all. It's better than two, but that's about it. Now, as we've learned dead and final mean very little in matters of horror films. It's kind of like when a rock star calls their tour the farewell tour. It more than likely isn't. So of course, this was not the final nightmare. Wes Craven wanted to make a more cerebral Freddy film than the previous nightmare films had been. He referred to most of them as cartoonish and unfaithful to the themes he had set forth in the original film, and Bob Shea wanted to make things right between the two of them, even throwing some merchandising rights Craven's way. Craven went back and watched the other films and said he, quote, couldn't make heads or tails of it, and then took his original pitch for Nightmare 3 and made Freddy into what he'd always imagined the character. Craven decided that he was going to create a new playground for his creation, the quote-unquote real world. Gone in this film were the witty quips and campiness of Freddy, and replaced was a dark and vicious Freddy with an updated mask and new outfit to reinforce this. The glove was also changed to make the knives look more like bones, giving it a more organic look. The goal was to make Freddy different but familiar so people would find him terrifying again. To keep from undoing the events of the prior film, this one takes place outside of the film world and instead focuses around Nancy portrayer Heather Langenkamp, whom plays a version of herself in the film, as does Robert England, who does double duty as Freddy and himself. Other actors from the original film also play versions of themselves, as does Bob Shea and Wes Craven. Earthquake scenes had already been written into the film from the beginning, and it just so happened that production was underway when the 1994 Northridge earthquake occurred in Los Angeles on January 17th. The production team decided to incorporate real footage of the earthquake's structural damage into the film while being a little concerned that Wes had made a deal with the devil and somehow managed to make a giant earthquake happen. So when you watch this movie, all of the earthquakes, like B-roll shots, like of the street, all of that is real. All of that's the aftermath of the 1994 Northridge earthquake. In the world of this film, a new nightmare film is being shot, and Heather is having nightmares of Freddy. Her husband Chase, whom is based on her real husband, whom is actually Wes Craven's effect guy but is not played by him, is working on the film and is killed by Freddy's claws after falling asleep at the wheel of his car. Soon after, their young son begins exhibiting Freddy-like behavior as he is slowly possessed by him. Nancy eventually manages to retrap Freddy into the film world, and once and for all, Freddy is put to rest. Wes Craven's new nightmare received its highest critical praise of the franchise and honestly is one of the most unique slasher films you'll ever watch. It's very rare to have that level of meta achieved and still have a film be watchable. The film did okay at the box office when it released on October 14th, 1994, but its numbers were likely heavily affected by the fact that it had opened up against a little film called Pulp Fiction. At least Freddy went out on a high point. Freddy would lie dormant for nine years before another worthy adversary would present itself. My reign of terror was legendary. 
dozens of children would fall by my blades. <laughs> then the parents of Springwood came for me. Taking justice into their own hands. When I was alive, I might have been a little naughty. But after they killed me, I became something much, much worse. The stuff nightmares are made of. The children still feared me, and their fear gave me the power to invade their dreams. And that's when the fun really began. Until they figured out a way to forget about me. To erase me completely. Being dead wasn't a problem, but being forgotten, now that's a bitch! It's only a dream! I can't come back if nobody remembers me! I can't come back if nobody's afraid! I had to search the bowels of hell, but I found some. Someone who make them remember. He may get the blood, but I'll get the glory. And that fear is my ticket home. As promised, here is how Freddy vs. Jason became a thing. Fans have been wanting for years for Freddy and Jason to duke it out classic Universal horror mashup style. New Line and Paramount, Jason's owner, had tried a couple of times to get a script together, but could never agree on a story or, more importantly, who would distribute the film. When Friday the 13th Part 8 had failed at the box office, Sean S. Cunningham, the franchise's creator and former Wes Craven producer, wanted to reacquire the rights to Friday the 13th, which he did, and then sold it to New Line to start work on Freddy vs. Jason. Before Cunningham could begin work on Freddy vs. Jason, however, Wes Craven had returned to New Line to make New Nightmare. This put Freddy vs. Jason on hold, but allowed Cunningham to bring Jason back for Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday, which at the end features Freddy pulling Jason's hot hockey mask down to hell, and then Jason X when Cunningham got frustrated with how long it was taking to make Freddy vs. Jason. At the end of the day, New Line spent a reported $6 million on script development alone from several different writers for Freddy vs. Jason. According to those close to the film, there was somewhere between 14 to 18 writers hired to try and resurrect Freddy and Jason. Basically, if you can think of a premise for this film could be, no matter how stupid it is, it was probably pitched to New Line. There's some weird shit in there. Eventually, the execs realized that changing everything about Freddy and Jason was going to majorly piss off two franchises' fans and decided to put them on a stage that would show them off at their fiercest. The premise is pretty simple. I mean, you didn't need to reinvent the wheel here. People just wanted to watch them fight. Freddy is trapped in hell, as is Jason, but manages to get Jason out of hell and sends him to Springwood to do his bidding in the hopes that he will be blamed for Jason's carnage and the fear of Freddy would give him the power to escape from hell. But Jason starts to get a little too stabby-stabby for Freddy's liking, and when Freddy escapes from hell, the two end up duking it out. When Freddy vs. Jason finally released on August 13th, 2003, it came on the end of years of development hell that had kept the film from being made. While critics didn't like it, 
I mean, it's not for them, so why would they like it? Freddy vs. Jason was the biggest outing for both killers at the box office. Because nothing is sacred, nothing. A Nightmare on Elm Street was given the reboot treatment, and it's all Michael Bay's fault. In 2008, after New Line Cinema was absorbed by its parent company, Time Warner, Michael Bay and his production company, Platinum Dunes, began the process of rebooting the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise with a remake of the original film. Producer Brad Fuller explained that they would follow the same tactic from their Friday the 13th film, which sucked, so I don't know why they'd do that, and abandon the things that had made the series less scary. For example, Freddy would not be, in Fuller's words, cracking jokes, which had become a staple of his character, for better or worse. The focus was to, quote, make a horrifying movie. And yeah, it was horrifying, but probably not in the way they wanted it to. Fuller has said in interviews that the film is a remake of the 84 film, but clarified that they would borrow character deaths and dream sequences from the entire series. And guess what? The film sucks. I refuse to rewatch this movie. It is a result of the loss of the gatekeepers of New Line, whom were slowly edged out when Time Warner absorbed them, and there is no passion in this film in comparison to other Nightmare films. When you watch all of the filmmakers of the previous eight films talk about these films, there's always just so much passion and care in their voices and pride in what they made, all of that is completely absent from this film. As far as I'm concerned, and as far as many people are concerned, there is no Freddy without Robert England, and while Jackie Earl Haley did a formidable job with what he was given, it's not the same. And that's pretty much the consensus of the diehard fans as well. Freddy Krueger has haunted the dreams of audiences for 35 years with or without a new entry in its franchise. To this day, Freddy continues to amass fans from all over the world as new audiences are introduced to the Springwood slasher. Freddy's unique place in the slasher genre is iconic and he will always be a part of film history. He built a film studio after all. Sweet dreams, everybody. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you could help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check that out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the franchise that took everything we've been talking about this month, made fun of it, and made it into its own franchise, Scream. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.